But uh, I'm Ron Highfield. I teach here, uh, here for 33 years. Um, teach uh, theology, uh, and have written on the subjects, various subjects in theology. And this talk is from uh, my recent book, uh, which you can see here, the cover, uh, The New Adam. Uh, what the early church can teach evangelicals and also liberals about the atonement. So this is a book about salvation. Um, the talk today comes from chapters 7 and 8. And um, I, I want to make it at least uh, um, self-contained enough that you, um, that you don't have to read the book even to understand the talk. Uh, although, uh, obviously, the book is 180 pages long, so it's a long argument. Um, so I want to talk about uh, the Protestant evangelical penal substitution theory of the atonement. But in order to do that, I've got to give you a context. I'm going to kind of walk around because I've got my little thing here. Um, so um, the Christian teaching on salvation, um, also called soteriology. But if you wanted to, you could formulate this in a different way, but uh, the message of salvation could be uh, summarized as God saves and perfects the world in and through the teaching, acts, death, resurrection, reign, and return of Jesus. And you could extend that list. Everything about Jesus uh, God, was God's act in the world to save and perfect the world. So atonement. There's a little confusion here because atonement, the word atonement, um, Matthew Tyndale created this word actually in the, around 1550, uh, 1525. But the word atonement has a broad sense and a narrow sense. And if you don't get clear in your discussions about it, you're not going to know which is which. In the broad sense, it's a synonym for soteriologists, for salvation. It just means everything God Jesus did, does, and will do to bring about salvation. Most of us hear it in the narrower sense. Um, it's the part of salvation that Jesus accomplished through his death. But in the book, I stress that isolating Jesus' death from his resurrection and everything else Jesus did um, distorts the message. You've got to see it in the broadest context of everything Jesus did. So this book addresses two problems. Um, the problem of a modern audience. I teach, I've taught undergraduates for these 33 years, and many of your elders, ministers, you know that um, mo modern people in our culture don't necessarily understand theological words like atonement and justification and so on and so forth. Uh, even believers uh, don't understand, nor can they explain to others what they're saying. They know when to say it, sing it. Uh, read it in the scriptures, but Jesus died for our sins. What does that mean? Je Jesus saves. What does that mean? How does that work? Try to uh, explain that to an outsider, and you'll find out, wait, I don't, I don't know how to explain it, and they don't know what we're talking about. So that's the first problem I'm dealing with. Second problem is the problem of the atonement. This is an inner, inner uh, Christian discussion, historical, about the meaning of the, uh, the death of Jesus. So both of those problems are on my radar as I'm writing the book. Uh, there are two guiding intuitions that guided me, that propelled me into this. 
uh, guide me through it. If this message is true, that is, if God saves us through the work of Jesus Christ, then we ought to be able to grasp what it means to some extent. Not completely, uh, but to some extent. And secondly, when you read the New Testament, you get the idea that the first believers seem to have understood what it meant. And they were overjoyed at this message of salvation, which we have a harder time getting our hands around. So uh, what is it about them that they understood it? And how did they understand it? So I make in the book a three-part argument uh, addressing both of those concerns, the modern audience and the issue of the atonement. I want to talk about the human condition viewed from within. And I want to try to empathize with those pagans out there. Because they are human, they experience what we all experience. And so I want to try to understand what it is to be human in a way that outsiders can partially understand at least what we're talking about when we talk about sin and death and the devil and salvation and redemption and reconciliation. And then I'll talk about the human condition from the biblical point of view. I'm talking about the same human being as we are described in the Bible. Uh, and then in the third part of the book, what is the Christian answer to this human condition of what I'll talk about a bit later, of wretchedness and greatness. Uh, and uh, we'll get to that. So part one, the human condition viewed from the human, uh, from within humanity, is we see a paradox. The great thinkers, the myths, the literature, the story, if you read it, somehow or another, if you read Pascal, if you read the, the uh, Renaissance thinkers, and others, they notice that human beings are really bad off in one sense. We're wretched. But on the other hand, we have such great potential. And there's, there's a double side to us. We need some help for our wretchedness, and we need some help to become what we can imagine being. Uh, we have this, and I talk about six forms of wretchedness in these chapters. But this is to describe the human condition from within. And the conclusion of this section is, only a God can help. Realize human greatness and heal human wretchedness. This is the more philosophical section of the book. We also look at it from a biblical point of view. Um, and I talk about, use biblical categories, the title of the chapter is Destined for Glory, but we're made in the image of God, a very biblical understanding. But it says something wonderful about us. So great thing. Human beings are destined and chosen. And when you read the New Testament, we're destined to be transformed into the image of Christ, who is the image of God, so that we are going to be the image of the image. Human wretchedness, this is from a biblical point of view. And I'm in your way. Uh, well, from the biblical point of view, uh, I use the, you know, the parable of the prodigal son uh, imagery into a, a distant country. Uh, the three, the trinity of, of wretchedness are sin, death, and the devil. These are just basic biblical categories. Um, sin, in its most fundamental sense, is estrangement from God and our true destiny. Death 
is connected to sin because it is the result of sin. It's what sin implies. You jerk yourself away from God, you strain yourself from God, God is the source of all life and all being. Death is the implication of that. Devil is, the devil is the power in all its forms that enslaves us and keeps us in this condition. Again, that's summarizing two chapters in the book in terms of well, one chapter, in terms of the, uh, the condition from which we need to be saved. Part two, conclusion, only God can save us. In a sense, so you have human condition looked at from a philosophical point of view and from the biblical point of view, and each one points, we, we can't do it. We need a savior. Uh, part three, the, the subdivisions in the Christian salvation part, I look at the biblical understanding of salvation, just biblical theology, how the Bible talks about it, what, what's going on in two chapters. And two dead-end theologies, which we're going to talk about one of those dead-end theologies in a moment. And then my proposal, which is, which is tomorrow. Um, the resurrection of Jesus, absolutely central to the salvation story. Uh, and I talked about the resurrection before I talked about the death of Jesus, even though chronologically the death comes first. But in terms of Christian knowledge, uh, the first believers knew that God had done something special in the resurrection. And then from the perspective of the resurrection, they had to reinterpret, they had to change their understanding of the death of Jesus. Because the death of Jesus was a defeat. It was a, a, a question mark of blasphemy and of heresy on Jesus' part. Uh, and, and the Romans win. And they, cr they crush uh, the would-be Messiah. From the resurrection, however, uh, it has priority to interpret the cross because the cross could not have been a defeat. It had to be some part of the plan. And eventually, the conclusion was reached, it was part of the victory. Um, the meaning of the resurrection is God has acted as we all believed he would to save and redeem humanity first in Jesus and then those uh, 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 who followed him who were his disciples. And I have a section on the facticity of the resurrection. And the resurrection is not a metaphor, it's not a myth, it's a real historical event uh, that happened to the body of Jesus with the empty tomb and the resurrection appearances. No other kind of resurrection works. The death of Jesus, uh, you, the, the first believers interpreted it in this resurrection context. Romans chapter 1, Jesus, by his resurrection, has been declared Messiah and Lord. Uh, the Messiah and Lord was crucified. What do we make of that? How are we going to think about that? Well, clearly, the first believers were Jews in the first century in Second Temple Judaism, and the Bible lay before them, and so they had to search the scriptures to look for the meaning of this crazy event that the Messiah would die. And we know it's part of the plan because he's raised. So searching the scriptures in Deuteronomy and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel and Ezekiel and Daniel uh, to find the primary meaning. The primary meaning is that God has visited his people. He's 
He's, the exile is going to be over. Um, the, God has forgiven his people of their national sins. And they can get a new covenant and a new start. And they can be what they're supposed to be is a light to the Gentiles. And so the Gentiles can come streaming in. That was the first meaning uh, in this Jewish context of the death of Jesus. It has universal implications, but not apart from those implications for the history uh, that we see in the Old Testament culminating in, in the New Testament people of God. Now, the dominant theories, this is, is talking about, again, we saw the gospel at the beginning. God, through Jesus Christ and all he did, has brought salvation and perfection uh, to the world, right? Um, through history of the church fathers, and the medieval, reformation, post-reformation, in the modern context, theologians, what they do is they try to understand and make sense of that fundamental core message. And they've had different takes on it. Um, and I'm not going to review all of them. They're up to 20. Some people list 20 different views. There are seven that are dominant, but I'm only going to talk about one. I'm not going to talk about the liberal Protestant. Um, but the evangelical Protestant penal substitution theory is the one you hear a lot in songs, in piety, and in churches evangel of an evangelical type. So let's talk about that. This is 2017 Southern Baptist Convention that it reaffirmed the truthfulness, <coughs> efficacy, and beauty of the biblical doctrine of penal substitution and atonement as the burning core of the gospel message and the only hope of a fallen race. So you can't get more evangelical than Southern Baptist uh, Convention, and you can't get more a stronger uh, recommendation for the penal substitutionary theory. What is that? I know you've heard it. You might not know its background. You might not know exactly what it means. So in the chapters, I take uh, read tons of material, and I summarize the central core into three theses. The first one, and you'll recognize some of this, because sin insults God, who is the greatest good, sin is the greatest evil, infinite in its demerit, and hence it deserves infinite punishment. I'm not making the words up, because you can see it in the Andreas Quinstead, uh, who was a Lutheran, 16, uh, 17, 88. The infinite God was offended by sin, and because sin is an offense, injury, and violation of the infinite God, and he is, so to speak, desa, that is, intentionally desiring God to die. It has, in consequence, a certain infinite wickedness and deserves infinite penalties. And so far as demanded an infinite price as a satisfaction which Christ alone could offer. Okay. So it's infinite. Um, even a teeny little sin, one sin, is an infinite offense to God. <coughs> Jonathan Edwards, familiar name. These are just these are hundreds of people. This is a dominant prophecy. It will follow that it is requisite that God should punish all sin with infinite punishment. Because all sin, as it is against God, is infinitely heinous and has infinite demerit. Do you think they've used the word infinite? <laughs> <laughs> it is justly infinitely hateful to him. And so it stirs up 
infinite abhorrence and indignation in him. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. Secondly, and I know you may not remember all three of these, but I'll come back. Because God is just by nature, God must italicize. Must. It's necessary. God must. God has no choice. But to punish sin according to what it deserves is absolutely essential to the thesis. Francis Turton, classic uh, French uh, writer in the 17th century. He was the textbook for the Princeton Seminary in 1800. Hugely influential. God is not a God not only has not will to remit our sins without satisfaction, God could not do so on account of his justice. This is the common opinion of the orthodox, which we follow. Justice, however, does not suffer sin to be pardoned without satisfaction, because then the majesty of the laws would be violated and sin would not receive its due. There's an interlocking necessity here. Sin is infinite and demerit. God is infinitely just. God cannot not punish uh, the demerit of sin. Robert Latham is a modern writer, an evangelical. That God will give everyone his due is an axiom of biblical revelation. An axiom. An axiom is something you just presuppose. It's just a self evident now, third, because God also, also, also wishes to save sinners, and this, uh, and this places God in a dilemma. Okay, uh, the death of Jesus is the way out of the divine dilemma that God wants to do something which seemingly He cannot do. He cannot forgive sin because that would be to let it go and not punish it. And that would violate God's own essential justice. But God punishes. That's the word penal in the penal substitution. God punishes Jesus in our place and lets us go. Justice and mercy in this theory are supposedly satisfied. Because God punishes sin, but he punishes sin in Jesus. Because our sin had been imputed to Jesus. Kirkman, the incalculable sorrow of Christ uh, in Christ's soul, which he suffered toward the end of his life, arose from the magnitude of the sins committed to, or to be committed successively by the human race, and from the impression of the divine wrath felt in the highest degree, infinite degree, and proportionate to this torture which the damned will feel uh, in hell and in eternal damnation. So Christ endured our punishment. He didn't just, Anselm in the Middle Ages said, Christ made satisfaction to God. Um, that's not the same thing as making satisfaction by being punished. Anselm never said that. I want to look at three problems with PSA. That's not short. Uh, it's not a medical test. Now, you may not agree with me, but I'm going to give you three criticisms 
Um, you can chew on them and think about it. Um, there's a faulty definition of divine justice here. God's justice is best not defined as giving each according to their due. That axiom, I question that axiom. Why? Because it places God under an alien law that's not his own being. Secondly, it defines God's justice in contradiction to his mercy. They define justice as giving you what you deserve. Mercy is not giving you what you deserve, right? So it places God in a dilemma, and the atonement then becomes about getting God out of a dilemma as much as it's getting us out of the slavery and bondage to sin. God's justice is best defined as, and I, this is a little complicated argument, and I, and I see it completely, the perfect correspondence between God's actions and God's nature. Justice is a correspondence in any rendering of it. It's a correspondence between an act uh, or a law and a higher law. It's always a correspondence. Justice is a measurement. God is measured by nothing but God. Therefore, I say that God's justice is God always acts consistently with who God is. God's nature is best known in the face of Jesus Christ. How do we know what God's nature is? Well, Christians look to, to Jesus. So when God is merciful, God is being just because God is being true to who God is. There is no divine dilemma. None. PSI fails to distinguish between correctly uh, between what sin implies and what sinners intend. Um, it's one thing to you know steal a candy bar. It's another thing to wish God were dead. The PSI theory says by stealing a candy bar, you're wishing God was dead. And that's not true. It is true that if you abstract sin from a sinner and you ask what does sin imply they're correct sin does imply that God should not be God because I don't want to obey this this rule but that's not what sinners intend they just intend to steal the table or intend lust or some other kind of thing uh, so it's sin is not a person you can't punish sin uh, but and if you punish a person as if they were sin itself, there's there's a, a problem there. So sinners need liberation as much as they need forgiveness, because sin is this crazy thing that takes over, and we need to get free from it. And the atonement is surely as much about getting free, uh, Christus Victor, if you know what that term means, rather than. Uh, simply penal substitution. One more. Thing. Jesus came not to resolve a divine dilemma, but to save sinners. God didn't send Jesus into the world to deal with his problem. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Jesus into the world to deal with our problem. To save sinners, of whom all of us are pretty well chief. But Jesus died to solve a human problem. When you, when you read the New Testament, I don't think you can find God solving God's problem. Now there is the text in Romans 3, we don't have to have time to go into it, that God is just and the justifier. Um, but we have to interpret that text in its 
first century context, not in the Reform from the Reformation looking backward. God doesn't have a problem. So, if PSA has problems, is not biblically faithful, then what are the biblically faithful alternatives to having Jesus punished infinitely for our infinite offense against God in these three ways? My timer has not gone off, but I have lots of times for interaction. So let me just go ahead and see what we got. Five minutes plus, you know, a little bit more. And that's just 30 minutes. Okay, I want to hear what you got to say. So I'm curious, um, on the, the second point you made about there not being a divine dilemma, how, I'm with you by the way, and I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, okay. I'm supportive of this conversation. It's not a questioning, I'm just yeah. wanting to sure, you can get, your, uh, <laughs> get your take on how you read uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin. Tomorrow, I will talk about Jesus as covenant representative. Okay. When the first believers look back on uh, the crucifixion to try to understand it from their resurrection perspective, they, and, and we need to read Paul, not from a Lutheran perspective, but from a Jewish first century perspective. Uh, and Paul did this too. What were the problems that were bothering Jews in the first century? The Pharisees, everybody was concerned about how to get Israel to be faithful so God would end the exile, the punishment, the domination by the, uh, the, uh, the powers, and so that uh, the Jewish, God's people would be free again to fulfill the mission of being a light to the Gentiles and, and all the Gentiles streaming in. Okay, so um, there are promises and curses. I'm thinking of Galatians and of other texts in Paul. There are promises in Deuteronomy, especially in 29, 30, along in there, that talk in advance about the exile. God's going to scatter you all over the nations. But if you return to me with your whole heart, I will bring you back. And this theme of uh, eventually the remnant and the return is a constant theme in the redemption story of Israel. Um, the Messiah, there was, you know, again, the Pharisees, the Pharisees wanted to get Israel to be faithful. And the zealots, of course, thought that they had to be um, even more faithful. And Paul probably was a, a, a very zealous for the law. And those you know, persecuted Christians because they were polluting Israel and maybe delaying God's redemptive acts. So Jesus, from a, this one perspective, from the Jewish first century perspective, would be viewed as he's the faithful Israelite. He's the one, the remnant shall return, as Isaiah says. But it's just one. There's only one member of the remnant. There's only one faithful Israelite faithful unto death, who fulfills the covenant. And as the Messiah, he can represent the whole people. 
So he represents the whole people, a new people, now faithful to the covenant, establishing a new covenant. And from that basis, um, by the way, well, and of course the, the story is you have to, in order to return, you have to repent. And God's punishments in the Old Testament were not, again, we have Old Testament scholars here, but were not retributive, that is, toward his people. They were always designed to induce repentance. Because there's always a remnant that's going to return. So Jesus' suffering, as well as the suffering of the people, would not be interpreted as punishment or punishment in the strict retributive sense. That is, punishment because you deserve it. It's punishment to get you to wake up. So the Messiah endured that, that punishment due to Israel uh, to renew them and provoke repentance. So the Messiah, in this sense, is uh, the suffering is interpreted as a gateway to the new people of God. Um, so, and, and from there, there is a universal proclamation of forgiveness and renewal and liberation. Again, that's a painful summary, but to make sure I understand that, so I'm going to link it to uh, another thing. Is that akin to Mark opening up his gospel? was saying all the Judean countryside and all of Jerusalem were coming to get baptized for their mission of sin. Yeah. And then later on in Mark, we find out that the Pharisees were not doing that. But yet Jesus, it's kind of a, when Jesus was baptized, he didn't need to be. But God proclaims him. Um, it's like Jesus joins us in that, in that act, even though he did not need to. And therefore, his death, burial, and resurrection are also that proclamation to awaken us. There's, there's, a, there's a bunch of possibilities of how to to read that. That, that okay. may very well be one. I mean, 30 minutes. <laughs> and I have 45, so you have 45. Um, I, I just believe it's really important um, to dismiss. It's important. The gospel has universal implications. But it's important not to miss the immediate implications for God's people. If you, sometimes we read Romans, we read 1 through 8, and then skip to um, chapter 12, right? Mm -hmm. And why do we do that? Because we can't make heads or tails out of 9, 10, and 11, because it talks about Abraham <coughs> being unfaithful. And, and is God abandoning his people? And is God going to fulfill his promises? And is God going to be righteous? But 9 through 11 is a central issue for Paul. A central issue. It's like, what? Has God forsaken his people? Because God made all these promises to Abraham. And they've been renewed. And, the, and, and 9 through 11 is about how God is nevertheless going to be faithful to his people. His plan hasn't changed. Israel will be the people through whom he blesses all the world. And that's what Paul is concerned about there. Um, and the term is God righteous and the righteousness of God in Romans. We tend to read it in terms of personal sin, Luther struggling in the monastery with the little teeny sins that he thinks in his heart and he doesn't love God enough, so he's looking for a gracious God. Righteousness probably in Paul is talking about God's true being true to his promises. Because if you break your promises, you're not righteous, right? Mm -hmm. And 
up until that time, it seemed that even though Israel was unfaithful, how is God going to keep the promises he made to Abraham to bless all the world through him? Um, so righteousness in Romans is at least as much about how is it that God is going to be faithful and true to his promises, the righteousness of God. And so when we see those texts in Romans 3, talk about the, uh, the righteousness, 3, 21 through 27, um, the, where God can both be the justifier and the just, it's probably talking about how God can keep his promises without every single Israelite turning and being penitent and faithful like the Pharisees were. No, there's one. There's one Israelite who did. Mm -hmm. A faithful one. Mm -hmm. If you're willing to go uh, beyond God and Christ's sacrifice and those notions of justice and mercy to the civil society that we live in now, we are in a great debate about about what justice really is and what mercy is and what how it fits in our civic institutions. And we we don't talk about it much in church, but we talk about it a lot outside of church. And uh, I just wondered what lessons, even just on a personal basis, uh, how 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 this topic helps might help us inform our thinking about the civil issues that are out there. Yeah, well, that's a dangerous. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you see landmines all over the place here, but but, uh, but I'll just say that the the, the, uh, the definition of justice that's used by the penal substitution uh, theorists is derived its exact quote from Aristotle. So, and, and of course, Aristotle didn't invent it. It's just sort of a human uh, instinct that you should get what you do. You do. And Clearly, in the civil society, um, that that's probably the better, def best definition we can we can go with. Uh, is everyone gets according to their due. Uh, but my objection is transferring it into the metaphysical and divine level. Um, and uh, so, if, I'm not sure I can even go in it. You know, make a speculation uh, other than. If we had in our civil societies where we operated by the principle everyone gets what one is due, I think we'd be better off than have what we are. Well, I, I was saying because you know in California that I, I think a lot of a lot of the the hope for calling our our justice system the punishment the Department of Corrections is that civil salvation is. Uh, is a possibility, and uh, and uh, putting putting what is taught here, including the Pepperdine about behaviorism and, and things that influence. It. We talk about sin being visited upon the children and onto generation after generation. That taking those things into account as Christians, uh, when we think about those civic issues, uh, it, it seems to me that it brings us back to this. And of course. Uh, uh, we w w without Christ, we wouldn't have we wouldn't we wouldn't have the full lives or the mercy uh, that we have. But it, but our but I, it, I I struggle with the idea about whether our certainly in California we we do not on a civic basis generally adhere to the notion of justice that that comports with your. Yeah. Well, 
well, with your definition. Let me tell you one thing, and I'm going to get to other questions. But that Christian understanding of redemption and salvation have an indirect impact and have had an indirect impact. We don't chop people's hands off. Right. You know, or we don't, you know, commit, we don't have capital punishment for theft and so on and so forth. But it's indirect. And so I always hesitate to try to have any kind of direct transference. But let me get to your question because we've only got seven or eight minutes and others. Uh, this is, I think this is fascinating. I missed the beginning. Is this a book that I can buy? Yes. Great. <laughs> um, so in you know 20 plus years of ministry, uh, my observation is the majority of people sitting in the pews believe this, right? And my concern is the pastoral implications. Like what, what kind of Christianity is, is that? And that's where my deep concern lies. So I, I just love that. I have concerns in that area, too, um, and uh, the, my criticisms are coming, I, I would say, from a more moderate position, not, not than yours, but than, than some criticisms. Some criticisms are very much on the left and from a liberal perspective that criticize this view for its violence. Mm -hmm. That is, it, it sees violence as salvific. And therefore justifies. It, it, it is part of the bigger uh, post-Holocaust understanding of, of criticism of the problem of evil. That Christianity somehow or another sees suffering as redemptive and therefore it justifies suffering and we tend to get cold and callous towards suffering if we think it might also be good for you. Okay? But my criticism is not coming from that perspective. Uh, there are plenty of books um, I think mine are more cogent, but you know, because that's, that, to me, that's a bigger problem of evil. Um, yeah, but I, I, I understand. I understand. Let me get Chris's and then yours. Okay, I'll read This kind of goes off of Amy's question. So I have a four-year-old and a seven-year-old, and I teach kindergartners a Bible class. So I want to go to this class to say, okay, do we need a new mantra for our children besides Jesus died for my sins or Jesus saves? Is, does there need to be something added to that mantra to our kids? Or, I mean, obviously this is very complex, but I'm thinking of it through the lens of when my kid asks me, what does sin mean? Why did Jesus have to die? What does it look like to answer that? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I wouldn't want to get rid of any biblical phrase. And, you know, Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures, you know, 1 Corinthians 15, 3. Um, but, and, and that can be a very, very positive message, not with some you know, important content, but with the double content. Jesus faced our enemies, the ones who are out to destroy us and ruin our lives. And he was willing to fight them to the point of death, to go through that for us, because we couldn't do it. We were not strong enough to do it, but he did it. Now, tomorrow I'll talk about how he did that. What are the enemies? The enemies don't, our enemies don't, real, real enemies don't fight with swords and atomic bombs. The real enemy is this inner power of sin that dominates the devil, this threat of death. The enemy threatens us with death. And yeah. we do almost yes. anything to avoid death. Jesus faced death. Right. He defanged it. He said, you will not intimidate me. That's not what Jesus says. You know, um, uh, 
see, don't fear the one who can kill the body, but fear the one who can cast both body and soul in hell. But don't fear the one who can kill the body. If you fear death, you're under death's rule. You will do whatever it says. So our enemies were defeated by letting them do what they could. And then it was exposed that that's nothing. That's not enough. Mm -hmm. God raised Jesus from the dead. He's triumphant over death. And he was triumphant over the temptation to give in to the devil. The, the, the Matthew and Lucan temptation narrative is very important for connecting it to the cross and this victory. Jesus was victorious in the desert over the devil, not by fighting him with a sword, but by uh, quoting scripture and not doing what he said, not giving in to that. That's the real battle, and that's the real victory, and Jesus has given us that victory. Let's see, uh, three minutes. <laughs> Can I, yes. can I take you back to a more philosophical yes, uh, question? Um, I balk when I hear any sentence that includes a phrase like God must or God yeah, cannot. Yeah. I think you share that visceral <laughs> yeah. reaction. Uh, but I'm curious, Ron, if you could elucidate from the point of view of a PSA advocate, where do those musts and cannots come from? Okay, yeah. Are they supposed to be logical yeah. contradictions? Yeah. Is there something ontological yeah. that's limiting yeah. God? What, where does that come well, from? Well, there, there is, it's kind of strange to hear the reform, uh, postmodern, uh, post-reformation thinkers do this. But they, they say justice is an essential attribute. That is, that is what it means to be God. God is just. And God cannot not be God. Like God cannot die. God cannot sin. God cannot be unjust. Okay, fine. I agree with that. But it's when you import your definition of justice yeah. and you say the essential divine nature, God must give everybody according to their due. But if God is love, if God is mercy, how is that possible? What happens is they make love and mercy something God can freely do or not do. All these, most of these people are quoted with Calvinists mm -hmm. who don't believe God is going to save everybody and God doesn't love everybody. So love is a, God's loving his creation is a, a choice, but God being just is not a choice. Mm -hmm. and, I, and to me, if there's any attribute that says is God is essentially this, it's like John what, 3, <laughs> God is love. So but, but God is, I believe, God is essentially all of his attributes. So I, what happens is you tend to take God's divine attributes and make them sort of in tension with each other. And then some his, a historical event, like the uh, atonement, has to uh, reconcile them. Um, but what I argue is that love and justice or mercy and justice are not at all in tension. Right. God is being just when God loves. That's who God is. Right. Yeah. Could I comment on that? Yeah. From a reformed perspective? Yeah. I'm not reformed, of course. <laughs> um, I think what the reform would say is not that love is a choice. They would say the glory of God means that God elects some, loves some for God's glory. And because God is just, God wants to also um, glorify his justice, right? So it's the glory of God that's the real center here. 
and that the glory of God means God must uh, reflect that glory in loving and in justice. I still hear that is a choice because it's it's God's glory that God cannot be give up his right uh, to do what he what wishes and he wishes some to be saved out of the mass of the damned and some to remain in the mass of the damned for his glory yeah for his glory but that makes glory the master attribute yeah makes God the ego yeah which is uh, I don't think that's biblical, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be the reform. That'll be the reform. <laughs> okay, I think we're out of time now, but uh, it's not because you asked that question. <laughs> we are out of time now. I'll hold this up. <laughs>